Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Today we have Vanessa Kimball as co-host from the University of Law. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm, Vanessa. Good morning, Steve. How are you? I am doing well. I just finished my grading, so I'm already enthused about my forthcoming sabbatical. And I know that you have a sabbatical coming up as well. Yes. Uh, in fact, it's always that this kind of a, a bit nostalgic time of year as you say goodbye to one term and you're starting to look kind of a big project uh, down in front of you. and You're kind of saying, OK, let's get this going. So it's a bit of a shift in momentum. But, uh, you know, as you know, it, it's a quite interesting moment uh, in your academic career as well to be able to kind of get out of the classroom for a little bit and focus really on the, the practice of doing research and writing, which I think is also something that we often don't find enough time for. Yes, I'm still trying to figure out where I'm going to be, but you're going to be off in Eastern Europe, right? Yes. In fact, I have a colleague who has uh, generously arranged to host me at the University of Pardubich in Czechia. Um, and so from there, it will, it's, it's uh, about an hour outside of Prague. Um, and so from there, I will be going to five different NATO centers of excellence um, to do research, all in Eastern Europe. And so I'm, I'm quite excited. This is part mm -hmm. of the other theme of the CDSN that I'm directing on uh, climate change and security. And so I'm going to hold that a little to my vest because we are talking about other things today, including what I have been doing for the security theme, which is NATO. <laughs> and burden sharing. Yeah. So it's been a big couple of weeks for this discussion because the leaks coming out of the intelligence dump that the 21 year old Discord user dropped included memos that showed the Americans are displeased about how much Canada is spending on defense, which had Canadians discussing how much we are underspending. And there was even a letter written by on behalf of or organized by CDAI of a bunch of retired politicians, retired generals and others about this. So you've written a book. We can mm -hmm. call it the book on 2%. How did you react to all the discussion about Canada underspending and the 2% metric and all that stuff? Okay. Uh, so <laughs> thanks. The book is, you know, basically a contribution to discussion where I, I'm kind of taking up this argument both conceptually and empirically. 
And so first off, uh, we understand the 2 to 2% um, GDP spending on the military comes from a commitment that kind of, um, of for, uh, between defense ministers that grew out of the Riga summit in the early 2000s. And so we can think of this a bit as a political target and, you know, what Schelling and others would call a focal point. It's a common metric that all of the partners can understand and is relatively, I would say, understood by the public, generally understood, right? And it's a way in which we can engage in kind of a common language about what is spending on defense. And in particular, the link between the 2% was to say that this is, you know, a measure of credibility or a strength of a member's commitment to the alliance. And I think that that's problematic for a lot of Canadians because as we have seen, Canada's commitment to the alliance is very, very strong. But I mean, as the leak makes clear, it's never going to reach 2%. And this is for a number of reasons, notwithstanding um, the fact that the public support for that level of military and defense spending is simply not really existent in Canada. Yeah, let's talk about that specifically, which is Canadian support being a member of NATO of partaking in the NATO efforts. And Canada, to be clear, has participated in every single NATO mission except for one, which was the aftermath of the Afghanistan ISAF mission, that inherent resolve, which was a mission from 2014 to 2021, 22-ish, was uh, training the Afghans. And we opted out of that. But every other mission, Kosovo, Bosnia... Afghanistan, Libya, operations in the various seas to deal with counter-piracy and counter-terrorism. Canada has shown up in all of that sort of stuff. It So Canada shows up all the time, but we don't spend 2%. Well, and I think that the 2% itself is also misleading to the extent that when countries consider and reflect upon what their commitment or engagement is to NATO, you know, simply thinking about the military spending aspect just, you know, denies the role and the agency of all of those individual individuals associated with foreign policy, for example, that deal with NATO. You know, we are just so it's on defense and it's on what we're spending on the guns and on the arms, but a large amount of what NATO is and what it's been doing, frankly, in the last couple decades, um, you know, has taken it a bit outside of those very classic military roles and more into foreign policy. I mean, for example, when you look at NATO countries themselves and their foreign ministries, almost every country would has a bureau or an office that is directed towards NATO and or the European Union or both. And I think that this is important to recognize because when we talk about defense and that defense spending 2% target, you're simply neglecting a large portion of the budget, uh, federal budgets, public spending that goes towards NATO, but it's not those guns type things. Yes, but the, to be fair, even though I'm also a critic of the 2%, the metric, the question that, that NATO cares about is how much is being spent really not on personnel, but on keeping your military uh, capable and interoperable uh, at the highest level of technology, that they want countries to invest in weapon systems, not just you know things that might count like Greece has a large military, but it's it's mostly most of the money goes to personnel. And while that counts against the two percent, it doesn't count against other NATO goals of like twenty percent of investment in capital projects. So exactly, this underlines also the logic that two percent does not inform very well about what spending should be on. So what 
should be procured, nor very much about, for example, the doctrine and those types of things that would be important in terms of producing the goods of NATO, which are collective defense, cooperative security, and crisis management. If we think of those outcomes, 2%, how does that 2% line up with those types of outputs or outcomes of the institution? I don't think that that line is always you know, directly linear. Well, again, I agree. I think that input measures are bad and outcome and out, output measures are the better way to measure things. But bracketing that, I think the debate in Canada about how much we spend, I think it's uh, when I'm in the media talking about this, I have a, I have a struggle about this because I think that the, the debate is bad. But the larger point is valid, which is that we are not spending as much on the military as we should because we have a recruitment and personnel crisis, uh, which is partly money-based. That is that we probably would do a better job of recruiting if we paid better, if we had better military bases, if we did more to accommodate the, the moving costs, that kind of thing. Although NATO doesn't really care about that side of things. That we now have learned from the Ukraine war that we need to have a lot more ammunition standing by since the we it turns out modern warfare requires us to use lots more ammunition rapidly. Uh, that there are weapon systems we don't have that would the war has revealed to be more important than we thought about, anti-aircraft, anti-drone weapon systems. So there are a lot of things we could be spending more money. I just hate the debate that is portrayed as 2% because, again, it gets us thinking about the wrong things. Exactly. And I, I totally agree that the foundation of this debate is absolutely a type of reflection that Canada needs to be interested in. Um particularly at this juncture of what we now observe and we have updated our information about, you know, Russian intentions in Europe and the fact that, you know, there's that shared Arctic space with Russia and there is uncertainty about that that's coming down in the next several years. And so in terms of I think that that's also another interesting thing to point out as well, that with the entry of Finland and Sweden, uh, well, Sweden impending, we'll say, <laughs> into the alliance that also changes Canada's strategic position a bit uh, relative to Russia. And, um, you know, how is that going to shape out in terms of long-term spending given commitments to NORAD modernization in all of this? But I think what is clear is that it's good that there are reflections and a level of um, criticism. It will be interesting to see how the government reacts to those things. I think we've already seen a level of a type of damage control that started with various, you know, stakeholders by the government. But what will that look like as we go into the summer and um, the new discussions about next year's budget and in an enlarged alliance, you know, it's going to change things a little bit. And so I think that's also something to be keeping track of. Yeah, I think one of the things is the as an aside is. The debate of the, you know, the, the citations in the article about which allies were pissed off at us, and they cited the Germans and the Turks, and it's like, okay, maybe the Europeans are not happy with us, but the Ger the Germans have no ground to stand on, and the Turks have even less ground to stand on, since the Turks are the ones who are blocking Sweden's membership into NATO. Anyhow, I think in terms of what the government's going to do about this, I don't think they're going to do much about it. I think this is they'll think of this as a storm passing over because they, they'll look at the polls. We've done our own surveys, uh, and I posted a tweet about our surveys. J.C. Boucher, one of the CDSN co-directors, has a survey in the field right now about defense spending. But Canadians generally are mixed. Some want to spend more, some want to spend less, some want to cut spending, but it's not a vote winner. It's not going to get the liberals back into power in 2025. And so I don't think this government's going to make the calculation that, oh, no, the, the Americans are upset with us, so therefore we need to, you know, increase our defense spending by 60% in order to get to 2% quickly. I just don't think that they're motivated that way. 
Uh, I don't think they have the incentives to do that. I don't, and I don't think the conservatives would either. I think the conservatives are actually more likely to cut the uh, uh, defense spending than increase it because they're committed to tax cuts and budget, flat, uh, getting rid of budget deficits. So I, I think politically, you're not going to see much more spending on the military, even though they've made big commitments that would require more money, such as NORAD modernization. They've talked about spending $40 billion. Well, where is that? that, that can't, that's got to be new money, or at least a lot of that's got to be new money. It can't just be hived out of other things or else everything else is not going to be able to work. So it does seem that there's maybe a battle within the government between what the defense ministry needs and what prime minister's office is willing to, willing to spend, because I, I just don't think they see it as being a vote winner. And that's all, all that matters to a large degree. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the, the story that generated this, which is we had a 20-year-old dude who was trying to prove to his friends that he's cool by releasing documents. Now, on the bright side, this means that whenever Canada has an intelligence leak, they can say, hey, Americans, you can't get too uppity about us. You've, you've had Manning, you've had Snowden, and then you have this dude, Texera. Stop whining us. So does this mean that we shouldn't worry too much about our intelligence leaks? Uh, what is your reaction to the story of this guy trying to prove that he's cool by by sharing stuff in Discord? I mean, I think in some senses, this this plays a, a bit quite rationally into kind of the complicated masculinities in the military that we already see, right? That the context of this leak was essentially somebody who was video gaming and trying to prove he was right to these people that he had probably never met in person and had competed with in a video game. And so, you know, essentially to prove a point revealed what were what was a set of documents that, you know, obviously this person had probably signed paperwork and had trainings to not reveal. Right. Um, <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> and so I think that there's a little bit of an irony about this. You know, they said that whatever the, 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 the discord group is named Thug Shaker Central. So I think that that's, you know, also notable. There is a level of we would think about socialization and culture, uh, you know, essentially going on there. And I think this speaks a little bit to the irony about the, you know, the, the rec recruitment piece that's going on and the fact that this whole thing started over what was, you know, uh, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, um, to use a masculinist term, probably a little bit of a peeing contest. And now essentially we have these repercussions that are quite far reaching, not to mention the fact that this essentially, there was a little bit of time between when these documents were, you know, deposited and when all of this kind of was revealed, which also suggests that there's a little bit more of a delay in our capacity to kind of detect these information leaks than you know what we we would like to advertise which i think is also a little bit interesting yeah i, I do think that that well, the challenge is one of the revelations from 9 11 was that we didn't the united states didn't share intelligence enough although to be fair the systems that this guy took advantage of were in place before that because i when i was on the joint staff i had access to this information too not that it was always easy to find, uh, not that I went looking for it. But I remember signing all these documents that said that if I release this information, I could go to jail. So this guy should, you know, if he goes to jail, shouldn't whine about the fact he went to jail for violating what, you know, you have to go out of your way to sign these forms as, as you get read into these, to these uh, systems. Um, yeah, and of course, this is also not something that the military takes lightly, right? Yeah. So it's not uh, like you're signing up for your extra points on your groceries or something like that when you're signing these documents. There's a, there's a clear understanding that this is, you know, these are matters of national security. And so I agree that there there's a little bit of, a, you know, there's a little bit of irony here, but there's also a little bit of, I think, shock in some senses that it was so easy and 
that someone, you know, this is somebody who in almost, I don't want to say so um, irrelevant, but, you know, in some senses, the context of the argument was something that almost banal we say in French. So anyway, the larger point is we've got to share intelligence, then we have to be, but if we share it broadly, then the risks of this kind of threat. But if you hold it narrowly, then people will not know what they need to know in order to operate. So there's this really difficult trade-off. So people are asking, why should a 21-year-old National Guardsman have access to this stuff? And I would think that what would be nice is if we had systems in place that way, if a 20-year-old National Guardsman is downloading stuff that was you know, outside of his narrow window of stuff, that would raise alarms. But the reality is that if you've been in, in the military, including the National Guard, for a few years, you're actually not a rookie anymore. You're, you're, you've been around for a while and you may need to have access to some stuff. So the question then is if you drop lots of barriers, then that will get in the way of people who are actually trying to do the things they need to do to coordinate. When I was in the U.S. Joint Staff in 2001, 2002, I was frequently asked to coordinate with other branches across the military and with other entities across the interagency of the U.S. national security bureaucracy. And so to do that, I needed access to stuff. That way I could build together a document that well, it was based on knowledge, not just about Bosnia, because I was on Bosnia desk, but on other things like when Donald Rumsfeld kept asking the joint staff about how about pulling out of every single American deployment outside of Afghanistan and Iraq. And so I needed to get information. So the reality is, is that, and I was, a, you know, a low level person. I was, you know, a desk officer. So you need to have the sharing, but we also need to have some vigilance about when you see somebody downloading stuff. So, you know, the thing that always drives me crazy about Manning and Snowden is they were downloading tremendous amounts of stuff and there should be AI or algorithms or well, it's certainly some, not like some... the TV shows. If you've ever watched any sort of TV <laughs> show about these things, as soon as you breathe on a keyboard and put in like two keystrokes, they figured out where you are and they're knocking on your door. And so I think that that also kind of um, the reality is a little bit different than, you know, uh, what we would like to think me keeps us, you know, safe sleeping at night. The reality, like you said, is that now we have multiple examples of individuals which would have downloaded massive quantities of documents over a period of time. And so what are the security systems that are preventing these things in, in, from occurring? And I think there's also a bit of a, I don't want to say that this was in the top of the the story or anything, but there is, a, I think, an inkling of a little bit of a, a, an idea that this individual maybe had an access that was uh, privileged because there was links. His stepfather had been in that very unit and a staff sergeant. And so I think that that's also something that might, you know, be of interest in terms of the future uh, of recruitment in the forces, you know, maybe these uh, shortcuts that we take in terms of thinking about links, maybe some of these things could actually end up being detrimental because they permit us to skip certain activities by these individuals because we have received, you know, a, a signal from someone else saying this individual is credible. Where in reality, probably this particular individual would have had a digital trace. I mean, they say that this forum has already existed for a long time. It was known for having racism and stuff like that. So what was happening then, right? And one of the challenges, the American military, like the Canadian military, has a personnel shortage. And so I think that vigilance about kicking people out is probably lower because people understand there's a trade-off. You kick out all the people who are potentially problematic, and suddenly you have even a more severe personal crisis. So 
I think that's something the Americans are facing. And I don't know enough about this guy and, and his history, but it goes to show that, you know, there's a saying that if one person has a secret and then it's a secret. If two people have a secret, it's in the front page or something like that. I forget the exact quote. It was, it was um, mentioned in the new TV show, The Diplomat. If you haven't watched The Diplomat, you should. It's terrific. It's not very realistic, but it's terrific nonetheless. It is on my list of things to watch. Yeah. Uh, Carrie Russell's fantastic. Rufus Sewell is fantastic. It's It actually gets the international politics more right than the domestic politics because it's all based on making this woman uh, vice president. And no foreign service officer is going to become a vice president of the United States. And speaking of foreign service and things that we might want to be watching or surveilling, the U.S. has arrested a couple people and charged people for activities by Chinese security agents. This, you know, has the seemings of a link to a story that we also kind of saw in Canada a couple weeks ago about these underground facilities by Chinese security agents. And so what is your take on that, Steve? This development of Chinese police stations in North America is very disturbing because the last I checked, China is not sovereign in either Canada nor the United States. And the whole idea of sovereignty is monopoly over coercion, particularly legitimate coercion. And the United States is right to arrest anybody from any government who is trying to exert coercion in the United States, just like Canada should be able to close down these police stations and kick out of the country or put in jail those who are engaged in coercion. I always used to use this example in my um, public policy class in the United States, which is when the Texas, Lubbock, United States uh, law enforcement comes and arrests you and puts you in jail. That's called justice of some kind, or it's called policing law enforcement. When a private citizen does that, that's called kidnapping. And kidnapping is illegal. The I'm not saying that these pseudo-Chinese police stations in the United States have arrested the people or kidnapped people, but they're coercing people. They're trying to enforce the will of the Chinese government in the United States and in Canada. And we're having this discussion about foreign foreign agent registry, which is more about influencing politicians. But this idea of having these actors in the United States and in Canada coercing largely Chinese Americans and Chinese Canadians, well, those people deserve the protection of the American government and the Canadian government. And so, yeah, the United States should definitely be arresting these people and either putting them in jail if they're American citizens or deporting them back to their country of origin where they're coming from. And it's not just the Chinese that do this. It's uh, the Iranians do this. The Russians do this. Uh, there are other countries that do this. So it's not just a Chinese thing. It's not just a, the Chinese diaspora in, you know, in Canada and the United States are victims to this. It's also other diasporas in the United States have been threatened by this. I, I remember that the Tamil Tigers used to run protection rackets in Canada. And so that's a job for the authorities to, to protect us, that is, and all Canadians from these foreign agents who are trying to coerce the people who they see as being subject to their authority, which is dubious at best. There's no natural transition, but one of the other issues that has been going on since we've last talked is Sudan, that there's been a, a dispute over who should govern Sudan. And so I thought we should talk about it a little bit because it's pretty confusing. What usually happens in a coup, uh, and I think Nanahal Singh has the best book on coups, is usually what happens is the military doesn't want to fight. And so... Whichever faction within a coup attempt 
is able to establish that they're more likely to win, everybody folds and supports that side. So that way there's actually no harm done, that there's very little violence. Most coups are not violent. Most coup attempts are not violent. What we have in this effort is we have got two rival actors, the military and then the a paramilitary force, not agreeing that somebody has won the, the coup attempt. And this is where civil wars can come from. So we're having two sides, two different branches of the armed forces, one again military, one being a paramilitary. And usually the idea of this is that you have a paramilitary to deter the military from having a coup, because the whole idea of a coup is, again, trying to coordinate. And if there's actors you can't control, that should deter you from launching a coup. But what we have here is two sides who basically overthrew democracy a few years ago, and they had a very shaky arrangement that finally broke down. And it's been very violent, much more violent than we would have otherwise expected. And so people are saying... You know, I was in Khartoum, everything was fine, it was normal, everything was working really well, and then five minutes later, not so much. So for the for Canada and for other countries outside this conflict, it becomes more a question of evacuation in the short term than anything else. There's nobody on the ground that we want to recognize as being a legitimate governor of Sudan since both sides of the civil war are, you know, coercive thugs, essentially. And I think that this also brings to highlight the the challenges um, when we do things like send international institutions into conflicts without having a kind of a level of a ceasefire and stability on the ground, right? And so we've seen here that UN workers have been killed in this conflict. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, it's something that was that had been festering for a while, frankly, as you said, and I think that most, you know, crisis experts probably, you know, have had Sudan on their short list of regions to watch for a number of years. And the surprise at the speed in which peace broke down, uh, you know, I think that this speaks very strongly to the fact that when you don't, when the an international, an external actor like an international organization doesn't have a stable presence or doesn't have a presence that has any sort of role to intervene, you see these rapid deteriorations and then we're essentially, it's backpedaling, it's reaction mode. And that's what Canada is doing now, right? Trying to evacuate Canadians, trying to evacuate other Westerners, the few countries that are left that have kind of hung out and tried to stay in and make a difference. Those individuals are now literally at risk. It's important to note that it's not because these people failed in any of their missions. It's frankly, we tried to put organizations to, you know, pursue mandates that were in environments where it was just not possible. We didn't have the stability that was required. Well, I, th I think the larger question is really what, after these two actors overthrew the democracy, you know, the fragile democracy that was there a couple of years ago, what has been done by the United States, what has been done by Canada, what has been done by the UN and other actors to, you know, try to get uh, Sudan in a, a better place, but the problem is we have to be have some humility about what can we do as outside actors to affect uh, this stuff. Because the obviously, if if the military and the paramilitary are strong enough in the country, and we're not willing to send large amounts of military force, then these folks are just you know we we have limited ability to to shape outcomes, and that's just something we have to take seriously that. Um, we simply don't have the power to inflict our outcomes upon Sudan. 
So the question is, how do we mitigate or reduce the damage if we can't control things? Exactly. And as we speak right now, the public relations arm of, of uh, defense has put out their primer on the evacuation of Canadians from Sudan, a non-combatant evacuation operation, talking about the various offices that are now responsible for it and what's going on. Yeah, and it seems like some of Canadians were evacuated by the Germans and some Canadians are going to be evacuated by other allies and we will also be evacuating people. It, it's not that we don't have a lot of resources in the region and some of our friends do. So it'll, it'll be, as usual, a combined effort to try to do the best we can to get as many folks out of harm's way as possible. But none of this is particularly easy. And it does seem to be the case that the two actors on the ground are being fairly indiscriminate in their violence, although... When the Americans started doing the evacuations, the other side was like, well, we're not going to shoot. You know, there wasn't a coordination in the sense that like the paramilitary was agreeing to to support the American evacuation, but they also weren't firing on Americans because that would have been dumb. We'll see how this develops, but I don't think we're going to see anything good in Sudan anytime soon because it, it, one of these two sides is probably going to win. And it, and. I don't think either one of them is going to be a good governor of, of the for the citizens of, of Sudan. Well, I, I mean, I think the, because of the level of violence that they're experiencing right now, any transition towards peace or transition towards stability is going to be painful. And it's going to be very difficult to prevent, you know, kind of retribution from going around, uh, especially because now it's got to a level where the parties are so anchored in their kind of, you know, their opposition to each other. And so, yeah, uh, frankly, the outlook is not good, and it's going to be um, a challenge uh, to try to manage or reduce the externalities that could also fall out of this into the other countries around the Sudan, which is also not a region that's entirely stable as well. Indeed. I think we'll wrap that up here. Next on our, in this episode, we have Yanis Garrisons, who's the Secretary of State of the Ministry of Defense for the Republic of Latvia. He's equivalent to the deputy minister, and so I had a chance to talk to him a couple weeks ago about what's going on in Latvia and how Latvia is feeling about Russia these days and about NATO and about the Canadian mission in Latvia. This is a NATO-full episode, which is appropriate given your research interests, Vanessa. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Good luck finishing your grading and getting ready for your, your big sabbatical trip that's ahead of you. And good luck to you too, Steve, trying to get finished through all of those graduate projects to read and preparing to take a little time outside of the classroom and focus on research and get maybe get a little bit of break. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Yep. So today we're talking with Yanis Garrisons, the de deputy Defense Minister of Latvia. He's in Ottawa for more consultations. What brings you to town? Well, uh, um, there are a lot of issues to discuss uh, with Canadian um, colleagues. Uh, one of uh, and the most important issue is Canadian presence uh, mm -hmm. in Latvia. As, as you know, the Canadian-led uh, battle group, uh, or which is called uh, EFP, forward presence, that's been already more than five years in Latvia. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think when we started this project more than five years ago, there were no infrastructure, there were no... Uh, uh, and it was uh, everything was challenged. Uh, I think now it's uh, 
uh, interesting thing that this battle group is actually became probably part of of uh, our society already because mm-hmm. soldiers have uh, been participating in in many cultural social events across the country and they've been engaged uh, basically uh, with uh, different parts of society and they've been accepted uh, mm-hmm. and they've been uh, training in, not in one particular training range uh, but uh, across all training ranges and they're interacting with our National Guard which is uh, the territorial force. Uh, I think this is a unique say, project uh, where we see that also initially the Russian propaganda was trying to you know, use different mm-hmm. means to discredit NATO force in eyes of Latvian society, but it's actually, it's faded. It's probably the best proof how to integrate the allied forces on your soil. But now this, uh, since Madrid, the last uh, decisions in Madrid, of course, is a uh, new challenge because uh, this decision to uh, enlarge mm-hmm. this uh, battalion size, uh, combat unit uh, up to um, brigade size. Mm-hmm. And so also means that uh, if currently the EFP uh, is a part of our brigade, mechanized brigade, mm-hmm. then they w- would become the separate brigade. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, of course, uh, our brigade would be also, there would be from two brigades, there would be, from one brigade, there would be two brigades. Uh, and that is, I think, a challenge, what is actually, we have to deal with one on Canadian side, of course, uh, uh, capabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, on our side, there's uh, infrastructure, new training ranges and mm-hmm. things like that, because it's uh, to accommodate new units. Uh, it requires not only barracks uh, and things like that, but also uh, the training facilities. Sure. That is probably the most important thing. And so you're going roughly from a 1,000 foreign troops to about 3,000 if the yes. or, you know, typical yes. size of the brigade. And that's, of course, in parallel, we actually, this uh, process where we uh, also uh, expanding our own military and wartime structures. And actually yesterday, the Parliament's Defense Committee finished work in the last reading on the law on conscription. Mm-hmm. And next week, the parliament most likely will approve the law in last reading. And so until now, Latvia has not had conscription, but will in the future. We had it until 2006, mm-hmm. uh, and we abolished it in 2006. Uh, and, and now we're uh, going back to conscription, and uh, basically... Which is, uh, it's easy to say, <laughs> to say, but once we, you know, started to work on that, we realized that basically it's a lot, basically uh, the whole system has been abolished, starting from, you know, how you would select the young people, how you would gather all information, how you check the health conditions and many other things. And, and that actually now we have to reinstate everything back. And so... What age groups, and is will be both men and women, or just men? That's uh, the current reading is like uh, the, the for men it's uh, mandatory, and for a female it's uh, voluntary. Okay. But we, uh, I have to say, in current uh, both in the national guard and in professional forces, uh, the percentage uh, of female soldiers is one of the highest in NATO. Mm. It's uh, around twenty percent. Mm-hmm. That's one of the highest. Okay. Uh, yeah, Canada is currently at sixteen percent. Was supposed to reach twenty four percent, twenty five percent by next year, 
I don't think that's going to happen. So obviously this is in reaction to Russia's behavior over the past 10 years. Obviously there was no enhanced forward presence until mm-hmm. after Crimea. And there's been a movement from accepting temporary deployments to now an acceptance of this is the long run thing that mm-hmm. that it's not going to go away anytime too soon. I guess the question then is, given Russia's military performance in Ukraine, we see a more aggressive Russia. But we also see a, a Russia that's less capable than we thought. Mm-hmm. So has the past year's events made Latvians more nervous or less nervous because most of the troops that were facing you have probably been moved away from the Latvian border to fight in Ukraine? Well, I would say there's several factors which affected Latvian uh, uh, perception. I think on one side, yes, this perception of the danger is not imminent uh, as it uh, sometimes seems. Mm-hmm. Of course, we see that units across the border, they, they suffered significant uh, losses and, and the military capabilities are not there. But from other side, I think they, our people, they see the cruelty of Russians, uh, what they're doing in Ukraine. And of course, you see, in our case, it brings back all historic memories. Sure. Because in, in 1940, when Russians came, uh, Soviets came to Latvia, and then in 1944, 1945, that was the same. We expected, you know, that will be like this, but probably we uh, let us believe, ourselves believe that, you know, that's um, more than 80 years, probably something changed in Russia, but apparently not. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, leaves uh, still a very uh, big, big um, uh, effect on the public perception and therefore. They currently, they basically, if previously the public would accept a growing defense budget, then they would say, well, you know, chief of defense and you know how to spend. Now it's a little bit changed. Public wants air defense. Public wants actually to know how military will will defend civilians. Sure. Where are you? Uh, bomb shelters mm-hmm. or Irish bomb shelters. That's right. That's, uh, that's how actually uh, public, and that is uh, part of uh, comprehensive defense, which we develop uh, mm-hmm. already more than five years uh, in order to you know, facilitate uh, readiness in uh, not only for uh, of military readiness, but also readiness in the society, both uh, in, uh, on individual levels and on on municipality level, on, on critical services. And that is something that uh, I think, yeah, therefore, you know, summing up, yeah, there's, uh, there is this, and, uh, probably some kind of uh, feeling of uh, easiness, but still it's, you know, when you look what Russia is doing, mm-hmm. it's not very comfortable. No, no. And, uh, and I think that uh, this brings, you, you raised uh, this issue on mass against quality. Mm-hmm. I, I think, they, yes, I, we hear these voices that, well, Russia performs badly, and probably there's reasons, again, not to do anything, because, yeah. uh, you know, Russia is so weak. I think it's a very dangerous, dangerous path, mm-hmm. because I think what we've seen also, and this is the one, one of uh, big lessons learned from, uh, from what we're seeing in Ukraine, that basically mass means quality. Mm-hmm. That's unfortunately, uh, because, uh, and uh, and I'm being a historian myself. Uh, I can say that uh, even in Second World War, uh, those battles in Latvia uh, between Germans and Soviets, they actually were quite similar. When Rus- uh, Russians were sending masses of soldiers, and uh, till, uh, you know the machine gun stopped just because it was overheated, yeah. uh, run out of ammunition. 
and that was the Russian tactic. And it's it seems nothing changed. You know, I think that problem for us is that, of course, we would not uh, dare even to think about such um, stra- tactic. Sure. But uh, you know, if your government is ready to uh, accept all those human losses, that's uh, and and I think also. It is uh, dangerous to assume that, um, uh, you know, Russia will be weakened uh, mm-hmm. in this war. I think that also historically we've seen that Russia is able to reconstitute itself, mm-hmm. regenerate the force. Sure. And therefore, we're now in the process of discussions on the new defense concept because we have new parliament. And I think that the big, big narrative of the defense concept will be that we have around five years to prepare ourselves because we believe that Russia will research. Probably not in the, uh, you know, in the quality as, as it used to be, but still I think they, they can produce masses of forces. Okay, so you've talked about this new defense concept. And so part of it is growing the ground force so that way it has a brigade that can match the NATO brigade. What else is going, and there's conscription. So what else is involved in this new concept? I would say also the new level of capabilities. What is uh, what we are now working on, starting with procurement. So that will be hopefully very quickly. We will sign a, a contract on procurement of anti-ship missiles. That would mean we would uh, um, establish more robust uh, coastal defenses. Mm-hmm. Than the uh, procurement of uh, HIMARS systems. Mm-hmm. They're in high demand these days. Yes, <laughs> but they are very useful. Yes. Uh, and and the last uh, but not least, uh, it's uh, mid-range air defenses, mm-hmm. which will be, uh, as I already said, uh, both uh, for uh, you know cover the military needs, but also to cover the country as such, uh, to to be able to protect uh, big cities and population from possible attacks. Mm-hmm. Now we saw the past week or two, the Scandinavian air forces all combine. Theoretically, that they're going to have a plan to be a single air force for Denmark and Finland, Sweden, and Nor- Norway. There's been a lot of cooperation between Latvia and the other Baltic republics. Mm-hmm. Are you more focused on interoperability with NATO, or has there been more of a focus on trying to cooperate with other countries in the region? Well, this, uh, it goes like uh, layers, like uh-huh. uh, like layers, and uh, and of course the overarching umbrella is NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when it comes to uh, Baltic cooperation, uh, uh, of course we don't have our own uh, fighter jet, and I, I'm afraid even if we embrace the budget even more <laughs> we will not be able to afford the fighter jets and of course i i, I personally believe that we can achieve those effects uh, more uh investing money in in ground forces and mm-hmm. uh but uh there's uh on baltic level there's uh, when it comes to air uh there's uh, joint air surveillance yeah uh, basically they uh, we connected and and there's uh, used to be also one center who uh, mm-hmm. managed airspace management uh, and then it goes to uh, to nato Therefore, and and the same goes also for uh, for Baltic countermine uh, capabilities, ships, and and uh, many others. And therefore, and then there are also issues where we connect with UK, for example, through joint expeditionary force, uh, which is higher than this uh, ex- 
expeditionary capability where we actually participate, but that brings also not only the system how to generate the necessary force, but also uh, communications and things like that. And then, of course, uh, United States and then uh, and uh, Canada as well, because you are a leading nation, and that's uh, that's also some frame where we uh, share intelligence and and uh, because of your presence and uh, more more deeper sharing of intelligence and of course interoperability in in many many on many issues. So Canada has now had troops in your country since 2016-2017. Has that led to you know rivalry over hockey? Uh, How how's the (laughs) how how is the relationship going? The Canadians think that their military is better at operating with allies in other countries is, has has the what what have you learned from from working with the canadians no i think that's uh, uh actually there's no rivalry to, uh, about the hockey of course yes. and uh there's a hockey rink in 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 other base uh, and and the soldiers play and and of course when uh, there's uh, ice hockey championship then of course there might be some rivalry but uh, otherwise i think it's been a very uh, cooperative and, and friendly, and I would say even uh, probably brother uh, brotherhood mm-hmm. between uh, our forces that has been established because uh, there are already probably soldiers, uh, officers who have been coming uh, not f- uh, for more than one rotation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's, uh, at least from, um, you know, from our perspective, we really admire your officers uh, because uh, we have 11 nations in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in this uh, uh, battle group uh, and I have to say Canada manages its uh, day, uh, daily uh, business those 11 nations and that is a fantastic job because we we, de- we basically deal with Canada uh-huh. uh, and Canada um, Canadian uh, soldiers actually officers uh, keep the whole uh, business of EFP uh, and basically I think this is a very exemplary uh, leadership mm. and of course I think what we've learned uh, also through those years, uh, as we, because uh, battle group is part of our uh, brigade, how to uh, work together? Mm-hmm. Because uh, there is a terrain. Terrain is uh, completely different. It might, we might see on the map that might think that we are very flat, but actually it's not. So it there's a lot of swamps, forests, and very difficult uh, to cross that terrain with heavy uh, with heavy vehicles, and, and that's. Uh, I think all this knowledge is very important, basically, to be prepared. And have your your military have much in ex- exchange with the Ukrainians, so that way you can learn from the Ukrainians what how to how to best uh, thwart the Russians. Oh yes, we already uh, trained Ukrainians as Canadians uh, did before the war, and uh, I think the interesting fact was that uh, we sent our first shipment of uh, Stinger missiles just the day before war started. They arrived on twenty third of yeah. of, uh, of February, and, and our instructors actually they didn't manage to train. They actually been training. Uh, they, they were training on the way back, <laughs> uh, on on uh, on uh, through dig uh, through corn. Yeah, and they were apparently used to defend this uh, important airfield in uh, near Kiev, mm-hmm. where those uh, Russians were not able to uh, take over and land. Which I think was a very important uh, step, but we uh, we do uh, still train this year. Um, uh, actually, there's a 
permanently the different uh, courses going on starting from uh, basic training uh, mm-hmm. we will train 2000 uh, ukrainians and last year we did the same basically what we do we, we receive like civilians mm-hmm. uh, and then we provide all individual equipment uh, all year and then train them and, and send back already as a unit Well, um, yeah, and I understand Canada is doing the same, and there might be some uh, projects also training in Latvia uh, by Canadian troops this year. But it's important, I think you mentioned this, it's important actually to get this feedback, and uh, we uh, provide some of equipment like drones, uh, which is produced in Latvia, and we try to actually get all feedback from Ukrainians back in order to improve those uh, capabilities and the shortfalls or uh, weak, uh, weak uh, spots. In, uh, but that, yeah, that's important to get combat. Well, they're, they're the ones who have the experience now in fighting Russians. It's not something mm-hmm. that, that we, you know, your country or I or the Canada is doing right now, but the Ukrainians are, and they're mm-hmm. Doing quite well, so I figured that they would have the the expertise on that. We know we talk about training them, but at some mm-hmm. point they're going to be having to train us. Yeah, okay. So your country is developing a new defense concept. It also has been a leader on strategic communication. So there's going to be the strat the the new Stratcom conference in May mm-hmm. in June, yeah. right? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's what's involved with that? Well, I think that's uh, what we we realized already probably a decade ago that Russia uses this, uh, the communication means uh, as a part of uh, basically Russia weaponized communication, and, mm-hmm. and that was how how we came to the strategic communication center. This probably uh, initially was. Uh, like a uh, way uh, to get to uh, increase awareness because uh, nobody initially wanted to believe uh, i remember that when we were telling uh, to some of countries that uh, that is uh, what is happening nobody believed until they got you know information of cyber operations at home uh, mm-hmm. now i think is uh, probably the issue is how to uh, not only recognize fake news uh, or i know hostile operations but i think the the big issue is how to how to basically create your own uh, narrative probably how mm-hmm. to how to probably protect your own people right. and uh, spread your own, I, I call it, uh, frame of values. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and also uh, probably at some point start, you know, delivering your messages uh, also to the uh, audience outside. That I think is uh, the goal of, uh, of this communication uh, because uh, otherwise, you know, we are democratic countries and we can't, of course, uh, prohibit everything like, uh, you know, it hap- it's easy in Russia because they, there's one truth and uh, one media and, uh, yeah. had, uh, you know, I remember <clears throat> in my childhood in Soviet Union, they, they usually said they, uh, people and party are united. Uh, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> that is, you know, they one uh, newspaper, one uh, radio and everything. But uh, I think in, in democratic countries, that is a big challenge, actually, how to ensure that sure that uh, you not limit freedoms uh, and freedom of speech, um, but then at the same time you protect your values and you you not become vulnerable mm-hmm. as a society. Well, and certainly the Ukrainians have shown us how successful one could be at telling a narrative there. That throughout the past year and a half, they've been really very persuasive. They've told a really good story. You know, the videos with mm-hmm. Western rock music are very compelling. So I will actually be at your strategic communications conference in June because the, the Department of National Defense is organizing a trip for mm-hmm. 
for us. So I, I hope to be able to spend a week in your country. I'm looking oh. forward to that. Is there anything else you want to tell the Canadian public about what's going on in Latvia these days? No, I think a part of, you know, military developments, uh, be also working on strengthening uh, what I already uh, touched a little bit uh, on the comprehensive defense, which mm-hmm. is uh, basically, I think, very important to uh, to strengthen resilience, uh, mm-hmm. strengthen resilience both as society and uh, uh, individual resilience of, of people. And from next year, we will have also the mandatory curriculum at school, which will be called the defense, state defense curriculum, which uh, uh, meant basically to uh, provide the whole youngsters, every youngster with the basic knowledge of, uh, you know, the things like you know, what to do in times of crisis, so how to react, uh, but also the, some uh, statehood uh, issues of patriotism and, and things like that. And there will be also attached the voluntary um, boot camps in summer if uh, those who uh, will want to participate. But I think generally the big issue is how to strengthen resilience on a different level. And it's not only about war, it's also resilience on a daily basis. Uh, for example, we've been exercising a lot with uh, banks and with the uh, financial sector what, what they will do if, for example, there is no electricity, no internet. Mm. And it's, yeah, that's just very, uh, I think, likely scenario in times of war that there might be shortages of electricity and how you will get cash, for example. Mm-hmm. But that might happen also in smaller disasters. Well, one of the things that this conflict has reminded us, not just in, in Ukraine, but uh, energy dependence. So, you know, has Latvia changed its situation so that way, it, it, you know, it's not dependent on, on, on Russian sources of energy? That's... Uh, the oil and gas is already diverted, and uh, this uh, uh, last steps uh, have to be taken uh, for the cutting off, uh, basically switching off from from the former Soviet uh, electricity network mm-hmm. and uh, linking uh, fully to European network. Mm-hmm. We are linked now to the, of course, uh, the. The electricity link, there's all uh, the common network, but we still are to some extent linked also to the former Soviet uh, network, and that that uh, the final steps should be taken to cut off the floor. But that's, I think, across the Europe, and even uh, initially. It was probably expected that it might take too long periods to diversify, but apparently even Germany now is yeah. diverted uh, majority of its sources. Yeah, so it's, it's funny how Russia has sacrificed its economic future, uh, as now most of Europe is now completely independent from, from Russia energy supplies after being very dependent on it. No, I think generally, if you look uh, on Russia's, uh, uh, you know, probably Mr. Putin's personal this policy, He's currently, I think, in, in like the 18th century uh, terms where, of course, the, the territorial gains and, and kind of glory of country were dependent on your uh, military mind. And, and of course, uh, apparently he wanted to reshape Europe, go back to and create some kind of Yalta 2 conference mm-hmm. where Europe would be divided again. That was, I think, if you look back... Uh, 21, mm. when the Russia issued this, uh, I would call it ultimatum, mm. just uh, two months before the war. That's, I think, the the big uh, big game of Russia was uh, probably they believed to conquer Ukraine in, in three or uh, 
okay, three weeks, not three days. But, yeah. And then they would, uh, they most likely would threaten us uh, as the next step and uh, issue another ultimatum in hopes that NATO and EU would succeed to those demands. That, I think, because how that is some kind of very old thinking, uh, if you look back, probably in history, that's therefore they refer very uh, often to Peter the Great, and that is something, glory, which is not, I would call it, uh, uh, backed by neither economic, even economic uh, gains. There's only some kind of imaginary glory of, I don't know, for whom that. Well, I do think that one of the lessons of this war is that there is a big difference between being in NATO and not being in NATO, because there have been no stray missiles or or any attacks across that, that line. The one time a missile hit... Poland, it turned out to be, you know, an accurate rifle mm-hmm. missile from, from Ukraine. So as much as he might want the glory of, of Russia, he, I don't, I do think that Putin is, does not want to have a direct military confrontation with NATO. Yeah. No, I think, that he, of course, uh, until there's uh, some rationale left in, uh, in the thinking, uh, probably I would agree. Mm. But again, I, I'm being historian. I, yeah. I'm, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I see a lot of parallels of what Hitler did, mm-hmm. how he reacted to many things, especially after 1943, mm-hmm. when uh, he distanced himself from the, his generals and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they started uh, uh, more rational, took many rational decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, um, yeah, we have to... Uh, yeah, I think they still rationale, but we have to be probably careful. <laughs> yeah, no, we can't. We, we cannot uh, depend on his goodwill yeah. in any possible way. So I want to thank you for your time. Really, very helpful. Definitely, very good for the Canadians to get a perspective from closer to the situation. And Canada has been involved in your country now for quite some time, and it's not something that Canada has a history of. It's not like Canada and Latvia go back centuries, but it is something that's been a major priority for, for this government and for the, the, the military to, to be focused on the Enhanced Foreign Presence mission in Latvia. And it seems to have gone really well as far. So I, I, I fully expect it to continue for a, a quite a while in the future as we don't expect Russia to change its behavior anytime soon. No, I, and, and the last, as the last word, I, I really want to express our appreciation to Canadian people for that contribution and for that present. And, and I think you have to be proud with your officers and, and, and soldiers uh, because they really uh, offer good uh, officers and, and they do their best and it's easy to work with them. Over the past five years, the Latvian mission has been a good news story for Canada. That's where Canada feels as if they're making a real contribution. Despite the fact that the Russians have tried to play up fake incidents, uh, there has been no real incidents that have, have caused us to, to be embarrassed or anything. So I think it's been gone, gone really well. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. I wish you the best of luck in, in, in your uh, trip to Ottawa. And uh, I hope to bump into you when I'm in Latvia in June. Yeah, thank you.